Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin, What Hope Do You Have? We're looking this morning at the incident, the historical account of King David and Bathsheba. And the challenge for us is twofold. Number one is that it's so familiar to us. It's really, for most Christians, very much like Noah and the Ark, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or something of that nature, maybe Daniel in the lion's den, or Joseph in Egypt. And our summation to each of those is all's well that ends well. And we don't really learn very much from them. We're so familiar with them, they don't seem to have much application to us. This is righteous King David, a man after God's own heart. This is King David who was struck with grief when he had King Saul who wanted his death in the cave next to him. And his men were saying, take him out, take him out. And he reached up and he cut off the corner of his robe. And after he cut the corner of his robe off, he was struck with grief that he had done even that much of reaching out against the Lord's anointed and repented. The second thing about this is that we look at this as historical, even if we take for a moment here this morning and think of the details of this, we just think of it as historical. Yes, it really happened. Yes, it's awful that he did it. Yes, it's great that God forgave him. Was for lunch. Rather than, what does this say about me? That's why the subtitle of the sermon this morning is, What Hope Do You Have? What hope do you have regarding your sin? What hope do you have regarding your own life in regard to King David? We're only going to look at chapter 11 this morning, if you're familiar with it. Chapter 12 is the follow-up to it with King Nathan, uh, excuse me, with the prophet Nathan approaching David, and then you will see the the follow-up in that chapter. Chapter 11 actually ends with the Lord was very angry about this. We're going to look at that portion this week, and then God willing, we'll look at the other portion next week. This is a very rich passage. David Verse, a University of Essex professor, says religion is dying in the West and I can prove it, he says. And of course he's right. He means Western Europe and the United States and Canada, primarily. He's got all kinds of graphs and charts and showing you how, what church attendance was like 50 years ago, 75 years ago, 100 years ago, how people associated and identified themselves 
particularly with Christianity, but also any other religion, and the religious people, and people at 12 years old identifying to be religious or not, or people at 15, people at 20. He's done a lot of research on it. And his statement is religion is dying in the West. And then he says this, is it going to come back? And the answer, he says, no, it's not going to come back. Modernity and evolution have set man free. But what modernity and evolution haven't done is set us free from the reality of a creator, of just and righteous standards, of something called sin. It hasn't done that. It can't do that. You remember C.S. Lewis who says that everybody knows what's right because everybody knows when they've been wronged. You never need somebody to tell you when you've been wronged, or rarely. Your inner sense of justice just kicks in and you know you've been wronged. And that inner sense of justice has always been there, including when you were wronging other people. But C.S. Lewis says everybody has this inner sense of justice. Plato says if we have an inner sense of justice, then there must be true justice somewhere. There must be perfect justice somewhere. We have an imperfect, but there must be perfect justice somewhere. And then C.S. Lewis says this, while we all have the standard of justice and we know when we've been wrong, we have standards, we know what's right, we know what's wrong, no one meets their own standard of justice. It isn't that no one meets somebody else's standard of justice, my parents, my spouse. No one meets their own standard of justice. We constantly disappoint ourselves. And Mr. Verse doesn't have any way to address that. That inborn, God-born sense of justice is in each one of us. And it's in King David while he's sinning in this process. And in the next chapter, God's going to send Nathan to him. You know the story. He's going to send Nathan to him, the prophet. And the prophet gives him a beautiful story of a man with one lamb and a neighbor with many lambs. And the neighbor with many lambs kills, takes the one lamb and kills it and eats it. And when David hears it, he says this. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, he calls him by the personal name Yahweh, as the Lord lives, the man that has done these things shall surely die. David has a strong sense of justice. And most of you sitting here this morning have a strong sense of justice. But how we struggle with it, how we struggle in regard to sin, even though we encounter it again and again and again in ourselves, we fail to become sober-minded and truthful and objective about it. We experience it, and then within days or weeks, it's like an etch-a-sketch. We turn our minds upside down and shake them, and we have no recollection of the grave difficulty and difficulty of heartaches and things that happened. And then God brings more into our life, and we see it again and again and again. I want to encourage you as we look at this this morning, and then as you reflect upon this this week with your bulletin, that you plead with God to help us to see ourselves in this situation, to see the frailty of mankind. We are much more frail than we think. We are much weaker than we think. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word? 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink? and to lie with my wife. By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, and the next, now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. And Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah 
the Hittite, is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger, and overthrow it. And so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? God, we do pray that you would open our eyes now. Lord, we are concerned with our familiarity with this passage. And we ask in your mercy that you would cause us to have ears to hear with a teachable spirit and a desire to repent, to learn, to grow, to be transformed. To be transformed in our wonder and worship of Christ, our Savior, the one who keeps covenant, that we might stay close to him as we understand the wiles of the devil, the lure of the world, and the weakness of our flesh. God, we ask that you'd be merciful to us and that you'd be glorified in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're familiar with the phrase that children often use, or it's often said, Oh, what tangled webs we weave when first we practice to deceive. The Apostle Paul says, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The challenge with that, I remind you, is that we reap later. And we reap much more than we have sown. And so we ourselves want to take heed to this passage and learn from it. In verse 1, it simply describes idle hands and free time and solitude. Idle hands and free time and solitude. And we're in verse 1, we just see the reality here that David has some time on his hands here and isn't wisely spending that time. And opportunities of sin spring up out of nowhere. That's a vital lesson that we need to learn. You don't have to go to a place of sin. Yes, it is true that many Christians raise their children and they themselves know there are certain places to go, there are certain places to avoid. That's wise. Opportunities to sin spring up out of nowhere, and we must be mindful of that at all times. Verse 2, David sees a woman and lusts after her. It happens very, very quickly. It is breathtaking how quickly it happens. Now, when evening came, David, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. If you recognize that phrase, that's the very same phrase, was very beautiful in appearance. It's the phrase that is used by the Holy Spirit when Eve looks at the apple. When Eve looks at the fruit, it says she looked at it and it was very beautiful in appearance. Again, I reminded you earlier that this is King David who in the cave with the opportunity to kill King Saul who had tried to kill him on several occasions restrained himself. So don't think that because you've demonstrated great self-control in the past 
that you always will. But rather, stay close to the shepherd. This is what we mean. This is what the Holy Spirit means when he says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Because opportunities spring up from nowhere. And don't assume that you're going to respond exactly like you have. This isn't exactly like the cave. And he didn't respond in the same way. Note that the passage does not say night after night. That's the passage in Joseph, you remember, when Potiphar's wife comes to him day after day, she says, lie with me. Day after day. Samson's wife says to him, day after day, why won't you tell me the secret of your strength? There's no day after day here. It appears the very night he's on the roof is the very night that the adultery takes place. It happens very quickly. And we ourselves must come to recognize the grave sin that is all about us and the potential, the the war zone that we're in, and that danger can come up anywhere at any time. At first, it doesn't name her. And then it tells us, he does some inquiry. And her name is Bathsheba. Now, there's some real significance here. Look at verse 3. I want you to review this this week. There are three names given here, three things that are said here. First of all, it's Bathsheba. Bathsheba is not just a lovely name. In Hebrew, it literally means daughter of the oath. That's what it means. She made an oath. She was married to Uriah. That's what marriage is. It's an oath. And her name is daughter of the oath. Sheva is oath. Daughter of the oath is her name. Uriah's name is the Lord is light. The Lord is light. It means it's all going to come to light. That's what it means. And it does. It's all going to come to light. And it does. And then you'll notice this, that throughout this chapter, it's pretty remarkable, throughout this passage, every time it mentions Uriah, it mentions Uriah the Hittite. Like that's his last name. Uriah the Hittite. What are they saying? They're saying the Holy Spirit is, this is not a man who was raised in the knowledge of God. This is a convert. This is a pagan man who's come from a pagan territory. The Hittite region is Turkey. He's a Hittite. He's not a Jew. He's not of the family of so-and-so, of Ephraim or Manasseh or Gad or Asher. He's a Gentile. He doesn't have a background of righteousness. He doesn't have a heritage of walking with God. But then when we actually get to look into his soul, look what we see. We see a noble-minded man who fears God and loves his brethren in the field. One of the most noble men mentioned in the Bible. And every time it reminds us this is not a Jewish man. This is not a religious man that of the Jewish background. He may be a worshiper of God now, but that's not his background. And so it reminds us every time the Hittite, the Hittite, the Hittite. Much like the use of Samaritan by the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. In verse 4, it says, David sent messengers and took her, and when she came in, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. It happens very, very quickly. It's quick sin and quick cleanup. Quick sin and quick cleanup. And there's no such thing. There's no such thing as quick sin and quick cleanup. But everybody involved at this point thinks that it's the case. And so... Under the sermon title today in your bulletin, I reminded you of that little phrase that most of you already know. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. 
And David's just beginning to learn that lesson. Just beginning to learn that lesson in this case. But they think it's all over very, very quickly. But it isn't. Verse 5. The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. It's the first consequence. The Lord is light. It's the first consequence from this quick sin and quick cleanup. Turns out it's not a quick cleanup. And it's already beginning to get more complicated. And that's the way sin is. Charles Spurgeon said sin is like a honeycomb, meaning all of the various cells that come together to form a honeycomb that you don't find one by itself. They always come in bunches. He said sin always comes in bunches. Verses 6 through 13 are simply setting forth for clarity. So we, we didn't know Uriah, but God wants you to know Uriah. And so he introduces us to Uriah, a noble-minded man. David sends for him. He clearly wants him to sleep with his wife so that when the baby is born, Uriah and everybody else will just assume it's his. But he doesn't. And there's two opportunities here by David. And the second one involves him even getting Uriah drunk. But Uriah won't do it. And he even specifically says, why? As he talks about the nobility of serving Joab and the people of Israel and the great cause that they're serving. He has an understanding of something much greater than himself. Uriah understands that there are things out there much greater than himself. Compare that with verse 14. Verse 14, now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. It's almost inconceivable. It's almost inconceivable. He sends it by the hand of Uriah. He's putting it into Uriah's hand. You'd think he would just send it by another messenger at another time. Something as evil as this. And so we see the two of them juxtaposed here. David is now drunk with sin in verse 14 and propelled by fear. Uriah is just doing the right thing. That's the beauty of righteousness is you can just do the right thing. But David is now drunk with sin and propelled by fear. You remember in the fall, there were four responses by Adam and Eve initially, and they were fear, flight, denial, and blame. Fear, flight, denial, and blame. And we've mentioned many times that in Mark chapter 5 with the Gathering demoniac, the one thing that this man who is out of his mind does right is that when he sees Christ, he runs toward him, not from him. When he sees Christ, he runs toward him, not from him. David is drunk with sin and propelled by fear at this point. But Uriah is just this lovely Godward man in every way. So David sends the letter calling for the murder by the very hand of noble-minded Uriah. The Lord is light. The Lord is light. He puts, his, he puts his letter of murder into the hands of a man whose name is the Lord is light. And Uriah takes it back and doesn't read it, obviously. I think we can say that's true. It is phenomenal when we see this for several reasons. One, because we already know David and we know him well. And most of us, being honest, would recognize that David is a man after God's own heart. He clearly does love God. That's not a confusing element in the scriptures. He clearly does. And he demonstrates it so beautifully on other occasions, including willing to lay down his life in front of Goliath. He's a very godly man. And here this happens to him. And therefore the question was asked in the subtitle of the sermon, What Hope Do You Have? That's called the a fortiori argument in logic. If this happened to David, how much more should we be concerned for ourselves? One of the things that does strike you, and you know it does, 
is that you read this passage every time and you think to yourself, how not hard is this situation? How not hard is this situation? David is the king. We know he has at least seven wives at this point. They're named already in Scripture. He has children, by the way. He has at least seven wives at this point. And he's the king. He could have more if he wanted to. How not hard is this? He, he on the roof and he looks and sees her. I've heard many sermons, by the way, indicating that she's bathing on the roof and what's she doing bathing on the roof. The scriptures do not say she's bathing on the roof. It doesn't say that. If he's looking through a window or something, I don't know. It doesn't give us that detail. The bottom line is he's on the roof and he sees her. And it happens very, very quickly. And so we need to ask ourselves, wow, how intoxicating and blinding is the vortex of sin. How intoxicating and blinding is the vortex of sin. We need to take that to heart. It is blinding. And David, who has defended the honor of God on many occasions, here falls very quickly. Joshua chapter 7 says the same thing. Turn real quick with your finger there. Back to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7 is the sin of Achan. They take, uh, they take the city, Jericho, and they're told that everything is Corban. Everything is forbidden. They're not to touch anything to keep for themselves. It all goes to the Lord, first fruits. But Achan sees it and lusts after it and everything. Look at verse, look at verse 19. Chapter 7, verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, fifty shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth in my tent. So he goes and he sends for them. And then he says in verse 25, Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them, him and his family, with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. We read that passage again and again and we think, how not hard was that? It was so clear. Don't touch anything. And we see the results of that. But God tells us again and again and again that we are to be learning from these things. Most erroneously, listen to this, most people erroneously think, I know right from wrong, and I'm incensed at wrong and wrongdoers. And the grave error is to believe that this is sufficient. I know right from wrong, and I'm incensed at wrongdoers. And the grave error is to think that that's sufficient. Sin creeps up on you. It hides, it lurks, it disguises, it tracks you, it pursues you. And it's very good at hiding. Joab, back in our passage in verse 16, is complicit in this. It's unbelievable. He gets that letter and he is willing to do it. He knows Joab way better than King David does. This is clearly one of his best men. And he's willing to join in. It's a great sin of omission that Joab doesn't send back a letter to King David saying this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. This is completely wrong and I'll have no part in it. And then it's a great sin of commission by having a part in it. And then Uriah dies in the past, verse 17. It says that others die too. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab 
And some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite fell. So he takes them near to the wall where they know they shouldn't be, that the archers can reach them. And several died, not just that he, he couldn't just send Uriah by himself. That'd be too obvious. So he's willing to sacrifice a half a dozen or more, maybe a dozen or more, maybe more than that, to get them all near the wall so that in the process, Uriah dies and some other men die. And we just see the honeycomb of sin. There should be a grieving at the death here. There should be a grieving over sin. We need to stop for just a moment, just a moment, and think about how incredibly devastating this is. We're, we're so familiar with this passage. But perhaps if you can think for a moment, maybe like a film that you've seen at some time, that here's noble-minded Uriah the Hittite, and he's sent near the wall, and he knows you shouldn't go near the wall. He sees the archers up there. He's a very competent soldier. But he's told the rest of them are going, so he's there shoulder to shoulder with his fellow soldiers, and he goes in and he dies. And now the camera just backs up with an aerial view, and there's dead Uriah, noble-minded Uriah, And the camera keeps backing up, and it keeps backing up, and now here is King David in his palace thinking everything's okay. Everything's okay. But it's not. And Uriah is dead. A righteous man. There are grave consequences and a great loss. When Jonathan Edwards died, they erected an obelisk, a big tall obelisk at Princeton. And it says on that obelisk, what a wonderful man this man was. It starts out, would you know, O traveler, what kind of man this was? That's the first sentence. And it goes on and describes what a phenomenal man this was. And then after describing all that, it stops and it says, the church bewails its loss. The college bewails its loss. And then it says, Go, O traveler, and follow in his pious footsteps. The church was bewailing the loss of Uriah the Hittite. He is a noble man. We are indeed to hate sin. Look in your handout, in your bulletin here. It says, on the third page, this is James Smith. James Smith, I remind you, is a preacher at Park Street Church in London, the church where Charles Spurgeon was. He was there before Charles Spurgeon. Those who are whole do not need a physician, but those who are sick. And by the way, that's all of us. The world is one vast hospital. Jesus is the only physician in it. He has healed thousands. He will heal thousands more. But multitudes reject him. They imagine that they can do without him. They think that they are whole, and therefore they do not need a physician. Sin is the disease of the soul. Further down, sin is increased by wicked habits. Once you start something, it can really begin to roll. Once you start doing something in one area, don't think you're going to stop in every area or in another area. If you start a sin in one area, it's going to just go in every direction with you. And there it is. The disease of sin is contagious. We contaminate others. The progress of this disease is constant, he says. Sin produces great weakness. Sin not only makes us weak, he says, but stupid. That's the intoxicating part, the drunken part of sin. I said he was drunk with sin and propelled by fear. Sin makes us stupid. Sin has destroyed all our moral beauty. 
He says, sin is the forerunner of eternal and unmitigated weeping and wailing and the gnashing of teeth. And then he says down there toward the bottom, my dear reader, this is your state. The Holy Spirit has given your portrait in the passages you have just read. We are King David. We are Akan. Can you recognize the likeness? If not, your eye is diseased. Do you feel alarmed at the representation? If not, your conscience is diseased. Are you determined at once to apply to the physician? If not, your heart is diseased. Oh, may the Lord open your eyes that you may see your dreadful state, enlighten your conscience that you may be alarmed at your condition, and quicken your soul that you may flee to Jesus and receive health, healing, everlasting soundness from his hands. We're to hate sin, James Smith says. Go back in our passage, back in our passage in chapter 11, verse 25, it says this, Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. And he ends by saying, Encourage him. Encourage Joab. I don't want Joab to feel bad. Uriah and several of the men are dead by the murderous hand of King David. I don't want Joab to feel bad. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. People often commit great sin and then parallel with it or right after it will do some act of kindness or sympathy as if to try to tell themselves, I really didn't commit great sin. I'm concerned about Joab. I don't want him to feel too bad about this. So he sends a message of encouragement to Joab. Verse 26, life goes on. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent, brought her to his house, became his wife. She bore it the son. Mourning, marriage, and the birth of a son take place here. Mourning, marriage, and the birth of a son. And then it ends in verse 27, last line. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Proverbs says, can a man take coals to his chest and not be burned? How obviously foolish would that be? Nowadays, everybody has gas grills, but when I was a kid, we had charcoal grills, and we're glad to get them. What man would ever think of putting those coals to his chest? No one would. But that's what sin is. Can man take coals to his chest and not be burned? I said the great concern that we would have here would be to take this in historical context only. Let me finish with 1 Corinthians 10. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about the division and difficulty and challenges that exist between them. And he says to them, learn the lessons from the Bible. And he starts, that's what chapter 10 about. Learn the lessons from the Bible, he says. And then he gets to verse 11, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Now, these things happen to them as an example. Who is it in this case? It's righteous King David, a man after God's own heart. What hope do we have? If left to ourselves, we have none. Our hope must be in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And we must take heed to ourselves and make sure that we don't find ourselves in that kind of a place. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will, with the temptation, provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to bear it. And then he finishes that portion with this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
What does that mean in the context of all this? It means this, flee from a wrong view of God. That's what he means. The modern evangelical thinks idolatry means the actual silver idol and bowing down to it, putting that on your mantle at home. Idolatry is any wrong view of God. Any wrong view of God. Flee from any wrong view of God, he says. And we must plead with God to do this. What is the application of this? I think of the hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, one of the stanzas says, Two wonders I confess, the wonder of redeeming love and my unworthiness. As David goes through this and then begins to see the consequences, and they last for years, by the way. They last for years. David loses four sons as a result of this. They last for years. But he learns of his unworthiness and the wonder of redeeming love. What does John Newton come to know at the end of his life? I know two things. I'm a great sinner. He's a great savior. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a great king and he was a great architect. God said, no, I'm a great king. I'm a great architect. David thought he was a man after God's own heart and everything was great. And God said, no, you have come this far because I've been holding you by the hand. You have come this far because I've been holding you by the hand. We must be looking to Jesus at all times and recognize how frail we are and how covenant-keeping and righteous he is. We need to run to the great physician. You can look at it later. The rest of that essay by James Smith is about fleeing to the great physician when we see our great sin. And we need to run from any wrong view of God as well. An application here is that we need to have mercy toward others in context of repentance. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbors yourself as you see your unworthiness. It becomes easier and easier in the context of repentance. There is a great need for us to examine ourselves and to consider where sin is and to address it and to plead with the Holy Spirit to assist us in that regard. We will need, one of the things that we need in this process is godly fellowship, other persons who are objective and relational. Other per- the other person must be godly, however. And you must be transparent when you talk with the other person. And you must be teachable and able to repent when you talk to the other person. And you must plead with the Holy Spirit for all of these things. Look in your bulletin, and we see Charles Spurgeon here. I'll conclude with this. Charles Spurgeon, who so beautifully comes to understand this. David could have written this very well. We see, of course, in the Psalms that he wrote these very similar things. But here is Charles Spurgeon reflecting upon this. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. He has turned my mourning into laughter. It's on the front of your bulletin. He has turned my mourning into laughter and my desolation into joy. He has led my captivity captive and made my heart rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He drew me when I struggled to escape from his grace. Do you hear that? David is struggling to escape from God's grace as he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He is struggling to escape from God's grace and God holds on to him and says, I have better things for you. He drew me when I struggled to escape from his grace. And when at last I came all trembling like a condemned culprit to his mercy seat, he said, thy sins, which are many, are all forgiven thee. Be of good cheer. I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have. 
Never brother such a kinsman as he has been to to me. Never spouse such a husband as Christ has been to my soul. Never sinner a better savior. Never mourner a better comforter than Christ has been to my spirit. I want none beside him. In life he is my life, and in death he shall be the death of death. In poverty Christ is my riches. In sickness he is my bed. In darkness he is my star. And in brightness he is my sun. Jesus is to the redeemed all grace and no wrath. The one who keeps covenant. If God were not the one keeping covenant, we would have no hope at all. If you could lose your salvation, you already would. And of truth and grace, he is full, infinitely full. This is the kind of thing that leads King David to write Psalm 23 that we're going to sing in just a moment. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of our great weakness and need and sin and blindness and of you, the one who keeps covenant. God, we do praise you that there is one, yes, just one, who is righteous. Lord, we pray that you would grant each of us with particular application to this, that we might worship you from our hearts with joy and gladness, that you who have begun a good work in us will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus, that we might take heed to ourselves, the one who thinks he stands lest he fall, God, we ask that you would help us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that by, your, by you and by your word working in us, that you would make us monuments and mirrors of your grace, children of light, sons of the Most High God. Lord, as we approach now your table, may we do so with a true and lively faith, with biblical hope, and with love born out of our great need and your great mercy in Christ. Good Shepherd, we pray that you would continue to hold us by the hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of God for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.